What's up everyone? Before we start the episode today, there's a couple of audio issues that we've been trying to play around with. Last week there was a background noise, this week my audio for whatever reason was much louder than Bobby. So just spoke to Bobby and we decided to still upload this episode because we do think there's a lot of high yield information even though at times it might be hard to hear. And then we've decided that moving forward we'll take the jewels from this episode and disperse it into other um, episodes so that you do get the information again and in case you do miss it in this episode but I still think there's a lot of value in this one so I hope you all enjoy please let us know how it is without further ado let's get started Cardi B and Nicki Minaj are the same person have you ever seen them in a room before at the same time I don't think so all right, that's all I need. <laughs> All right, Bobby, what are you drinking today? I am drinking Humulus Nimbus. It's a pale ale from Seventh Sun Brewing Company. It's actually a uh, local Columbus, Ohio brewery. Have you had another brew by them? Yeah, they um, they make a lot of beers. I, I'm sure that I have probably had one or two on the podcast before. All right, what do you think your Nimbus pale ale is ranked on Beer Advocate? I would say probably like 369. Overall, what? Oh. or like score wise, <laughs> yeah. Give me a give me a zero out of one hundred. Mm. Eighty-eight. Yeah. I, did you look it up? Look what up? <laughs> All right. Today I'm drinking a Gold Cliff IPA by the Kona Brewing Company. The score is eighty-five on Beer Advocate, so a couple points lower than your eighty-eight. But we'll see. We'll see. Last last week you gave your beer a five out of ten, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And mine was about a nine out of ten. So we'll see uh, how uh, the turntables. Maybe there's going to be some regression towards the mean this time. Ah, yes, regression. Wait for our epidemiology biostatistics uh, podcast for that. Oh, show. Only on our Patreon. Can't wait. (laughs) You want that 300 on the USMLE? You need our Patreon. I guess I'll start then. So uh, say you have a, a baby coming in. It's like a firstborn male. And you, you feel this like Pyloric stenosis. Okay, well, yes. Pyloric stenosis is <clears> very good. So uh, this is one of those classic ones that comes up. Uh, it's like the things associated with it are like firstborn male. Uh, it's usually like starts in the four to six week age range. Um, and you'll have like an olive-shaped mass classically described on physical exam. Sometimes you can actually see um, the peristalsis through the skin. Um, and you can... So how do you diagnose that? Diagnose with ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and one other classic thing is it'll be like a projectile-type vomiting. And it'll actually what antibiotic is uh, theoretically uh, associated with pyloric stenosis? So that's a good question. I think we might have talked about this briefly last week, but it's actually uh, erythromycin. Definitely, macrolides. So if you see a, you know, a little baby with the macrolides, and why would a... Is it the parent that took the macrolide, or is it the ba- macrolide was given to the baby? So I think, it, I think it's the baby. I think macrolides are safe, generally, in pregnancy. Um... But yeah, so it actually gets at like the alternative use for a lot of macrolides these days in that they can be like a prokinetic or a promotility agent. And so they're actually used as, a, uh, as, as that for like diabetic gastroparesis and stuff. It helps uh, get the bowels moving. And so it's theorized that it can actually cause some uh, pyloric hypertrophy in, in newborns. But why is a newborn getting a macrolide in the first place? Um, so that's a good question. I guess like, you know, like macrolides, like you get your erythromycin eye ointment. So if somebody yeah. had progressed from that and you were concerned about like pneumonia, I think they get... Don't they get systemic, like oral or IV antibiotics for, for that, if you're worried about, like, chlamydia? Well, if you want to know the answer, 
Stay so tuned for our because <laughs> I have no idea. But um, I'm reading right here that uh, there's a 30-fold increased risk if you have an infant that has a macrolide history uh, for pyloric stenosis. That's quite significant. Yeah. Well, I'll drink to that pyloric stenosis. Cheers. And the surgery, I think, is the treatment, the pylorotomy. Mm-hmm. Yep, nothing like uh, hot lights and cold steel. Amen. So, that's great. Anything else? I think uh, that kind of covers it. Oh, yeah, so the vomiting will be non-bilious because the obstruction is above the, uh, what is it, ligament of treats, or the sphincter of Odie, rather. So it's before the bile duct. Yep. No, that makes sense. So just to recap, we have a projectile, non-bilious, vomiting in an infant. could be male, could be female, a couple weeks old, four to six, I think you said. Mm-hmm. Maybe a history of macrolides. Any other risk factors? Anything else that points you towards that, or is that about it? I think uh, that's about it from a risk factor standpoint. One other thing that you want to keep in mind for them is they, they will be, like, voraciously hungry. So they'll, like, throw up and then immediately want to keep feeding. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is because they have all this vomiting, they can have some fluid shifts where they'll, they'll get, like, hypokalemic um, and be volume down. So you have time to, to replete those before you, you take them to surgery. So that, that is actually a classic shelf point. I think that was on my surgery shelf where they'll, they'll ask you, like, oh, this person has pyloric stenosis. What do you mm. want to do? And the, the answer, I mean, the definitive treatment is surgery, but you, you want to give them time to, like, replete electrolytes and stuff before you take them to the OR. Yes. I do remember that on UWorld. Replete electrolytes, stabilize them, get them to the OR after. Yeah. It's not an emergent surgery. Exactly. And I'm reading here, actually, that pyloric stenosis is more common in men, they think, or, or I guess male infants, um, five times more common, in fact, because they think that the male hormone, t- the testosterone hormone, is actually inducing muscle hypertrophy. And because males obviously have more testosterone, they right. think that might be a reason. So if that helps you, if that helps you create that correlation, then great. Cheers. We're all about that. All right, a uh, quick buzzword. What is the treatment of C. diff? So the treatment has actually changed in the last couple of years. Uh, but first line these days is actually oral vancomycin or... Um, oral phenoxamycin, and then if they have, like, recurrent or, like, recalcitrant, then you'll you'll try oral uh, metronidazole, and then if none of those work, you can actually do what's called a fecal transplant. Ah, yes. Recalcitrant C. diff fecal transplant. You have to be a special person to be able to donate uh, your feces, said one of my medical school peers who was very proud that he had done so. Yeah, I think they run a ton of tests on your, like, your gut microbiome and stuff so that you are transplanting, you know, like, a healthy biome into, into the person. How healthy do you think your biome is? Do you think you'd be able to do it? Uh, no, probably not. Should we try? Should we see? The person that, the person, if either one of us is able to successfully transfer our biome, the other person has to get you a drink. <laughs> I think that should be a, uh, like a potential reward for our Patreons. It's like you can get a, you can get a fecal transplant from one of us. If you what? want one of our gut biomes. <laughs> You want, a, you want a 300? <laughs> <laughs> there is all this talk about the brain-gut connection. Yeah, I was about to say, would that be an interesting study or what? You get <laughs> Elon Musk's gut biome, you put it into these people, and you see what happens. Yeah. And you see if it, like, Neuralink, it's like a, it's like the GI version of Neuralink. Right. Everybody ends up linking to Elon Musk, and they're all, like, controlled by him. It's like the SpongeBob movie where they, everyone's wearing buckets, but instead right. everyone's just eating poop. <laughs> I don't know, which is grosser. <laughs> I do. <laughs> the chum bucket. Where the poop Oh, very nice. Sick reference. All right, I have a second one for you since the first one was nice and quick. <clears throat> this one is less of a buzzword and more of a... Vignette. Vignette. Uh, you have a patient 
Comes in with paritic skin lesions on her buttocks and scalp, and a couple months of diarrhea. What are you concerned about? Skin lesions on her buttocks and scalp, and diarrhea. I would think about like a zinc deficiency or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's a good answer. I'm making it purposely hard, and I'm putting the skin lesions on less common, but still relatively common areas of the body. I'm going to adjust it real quick. Zinc was actually, I hadn't even thought about that. This patient comes in with a papulovescular pruritic skin lesion, uh, both on her elbows and knees, as well as a couple oh, months yeah, of diarrhea. Yeah, okay. So that would be celiac disease. Beautiful. Gosh, yeah, believe it or not, I was, I, was, yep, I was looking up this question, and I, I thought, you know, it said most common areas are elbows and knees, yeah, back of the I neck, and, and right. glutes. And I said, oh, man, Bobby's going to get it if I say elbows and knees. So yeah. i got to make it the buttocks and scalp. I, I don't know if I said uh, back of the neck, but basically posterior scalp and buttocks. And so, one, it's a teaching point because people don't think about those areas as much. Um, and two, it was the way I was going to stump you. Well, I'm stumped, so I'll drink to that. Consider you stumped. And um, as a potential reverse stump, since it's been a little bit longer since you've done step one stuff, uh, no. if you biopsied some of that dermatitis piriformis, what would you see? Maybe from like an immunofluorescence standpoint. Would you see... I want to say IgA. Ooh, yes. Spot on. Air horn, here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's actually, I mean, celiac disease is classically a IgA-mediated um, autoimmune process. And you'll, you'll see IgA deposition in the, um, I believe it's the like, dermal epidermal junction for, um, for dermatitis epidermis. That is particularly high yield for step one. Yeah. Do you happen to remember the three antibodies that are associated with uh, celiac disease? Ooh. There's three. Uh, I want to s- uh, So I want to say <laughs> That's not anti- fair. I hear you typing. <laughs> <laughs> Cheating? Oh, I got to type more slowly. <laughs> yeah, you got to get one of those like membrane keyboards that are quiet. <laughs> Quick uh, side note. I spilled a bunch of coffee on my uh, hospital computer recently, and uh, all the keys were sticky. So uh, that's why they tell you don't bring food into the library. Now I know. Right, yeah, that's anyways, why the keys were sticky. Sure. Airhorn here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it'd be even funnier if our airhorn noises are just us making that sound. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, so without looking it up, the uh, <laughs> sure. Okay, I only remember the anti-gliadin antibody, the G-L-I-A-D gliadin. Yeah, um, anti-gliadin. That's the main one, the, I think. Yeah. What What are the other ones? So the other. There's another one that starts with G, right? Uh, no. So there's anti-transglutaminase and then anti-endometheal. Mm. That is good. And so... So can you say them all again? Can you just say them all yeah, again real quick? So the three are anti-gliadin, anti-transglutaminase, and anti-endometheal. And um, something that is maybe a little bit less high yield, but I have seen come up before, is actually... Um, so a lot of people with celiac disease also have a selective IgA deficiency. There's like, I think it's a 30-40% overlap. Um, and so people will have... Uh, negative antibodies, because two of those three are IgA, and I believe it's anti-transglutaminase uh, is actually an IgG antibody, so you can you can get that one if they're, like, have already had a workup and it's negative um, if you suspect celiac disease with concomitant IgA deficiency. And just a follow-up question for that, what is gluten? Uh, so I think it's just, like, a, a plant protein. It's in a lot of wheat and grains. Um, and why are so many people now allergic to it? So, like, was gluten allergy a thing uh, 100 years ago? 
Well, the thing is, is probably, excuse me, um, the thing is, is probably, there's, there's a certain subset of the population that are just gonna have, you know, that genetic substrate where they, their body is gonna have an allergic reaction to gluten. Um, whether or not that has increased in recent times is kind of up for debate. It kind of seems like, especially with food these days, there's a lot of like fad diets um, where people will say they're like gluten sensitive, which isn't really a real thing, or they're like, you know, lactose intolerant when they're not. Um, so I don't know. It's hard to say. There are some people. It's who, really tough. Yeah, who have like definitive celiacs and like are antibody positive and stuff. But um, the thing is, is there's some subset of the population that will be antibody positive for those anyway and like won't actually have clinical manifestations of celiacs. But if they're told that they have those positive antibodies, then they're going to just assume that they're, they're gluten sensitive and try and avoid it. My theory is that, one, there's probably something within, like, the food processing that's changed over the last, like, 20 years, yeah. or 30 or 40 years, where, like, either it's a different type of gluten, or they're using more, or I've read before that, like, gluten is, like, a natural insecticide, so maybe they're trying to just, like, pile in gluten, and for some reason that, that bothers your immune system or makes it so that after a while you just can't have it, or just similar to other things, like kids now are becoming like more allergic to right. everything. Like the allergies are just skyrocketing because kids are so sheltered. Kids are not allowed to eat dust. Kids are not given peanut butter when they're little and all of a sudden they have allergies X, Y, and Z. Maybe the same thing's going on with gluten. Who knows? Right, so, so you're getting at like the whole like hand washing, like sterile growing up right. type of thing, like preventing people from developing a tolerance to these things that we're normally exposed to. At UC Santa Cruz, during a cell bio class, the professor would throw chocolate out to the students. And it wasn't like wrapped chocolate. It was like a chocolate bar that he would break and throw it. And one time he threw it to this girl, and, and it hit the ground of the, like, amphitheater, I think it was. Um, what was that one big, uh, like, the largest classroom? I think it was called, um, like, Classroom 2 or something. It was, like, the big oh, concrete building. Right. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm talking about. There were, like, yeah, two. Yeah. There's one really small one, right. and there They're was like one really big. Yeah. I forget what the amphitheater was called, but basically it was in that room. He chucked it. The chocolate just, like, hit the ground. And it was just like there, and she went down and grabbed, picked it up, and he said, "Don't eat that." And she goes, "You got to use your immune system. Use it or lose it." And she just ate it right in front of everybody. That's really bold of her to say to somebody who's like a cell biologist who would theoretically have a fairly robust understanding of the immune system to be like, "You don't know, bro. Use it or lose it." I respect that. Yeah, she was. She was very much a yeah. UCSC. Very crunchy. Uh, all the way. Granola. If you. Uh, yeah, my uh, my parents often encourage me to eat dirt. They still call me up sometimes and tell me to. So kind of weird. So I'm really? going to occasion they'll call me up and be like, eat dirt, and then just hang up. So I, I'm glad that they're looking out for me and my immune system. That explains a lot. Yeah, it really does. Anyway, I'll drink to that. Okay. So, a baby comes in, and they're also, like, a fairly young firstborn male. I guess as a baby, they tend, tend to be young. But, um, <laughs> you can't stop. They uh, they seem to be doing fine, but they're just having some like painless bloody diarrhea, maybe some like current jelly mm. stools. What do you think about? Intussusception. No, they're fine. Just some current jelly. You, you can have current jelly without intussusception, but they're otherwise healthy. They're not like crumping. But what leads to intussusception? Mickles. Yes. Airhorn. Ba ba ba. Airhorn. Uh, so the classic thing to remember with a Meckles diverticulum is it's the rule of twos, um, two times more common in males. It's two feet from the ileocecal valve. I think it happens in 2% of births, and the actual defect is uh, two inches itself, like in size generally. And there's two types of tissue that can be inside of it. So you can have uh, gastric tissue, which will produce you know, acid, and that can erode the 
small intestine and give you some rectal bleeding, which is like the most classic presentation. But you can also have um, ectopic, like pancreatic tissue and stuff in there too. And how do you uh, diagnose Meckel's if you do suspect it? So there's a fancy scan, I believe it's called a technetium 99 scan, and it's like a, a radio tracer type thing that localizes to the ectopic tissue. Yep, exactly. Nice. All right, so I have another patient. Mm -hmm. They're a chronic alcoholic, and they have diarrhea, as well as poorly controlled sugar. What's going on? Um, poorly controlled sugar and diarrhea, and they drink a lot. I would assume that they have, like, their pancreas is burned out from drinking, probably have chronic pancreatitis. Air horns. That is correct. Nice. Pancreatic insufficiency. And I, I brought this up because I actually had a patient last week with this exact kind of presentation, chronic alcoholic, frail, cachectic, basically severely malnourished. Um, and what we have to do for them basically is symptomatic control because uh, diarrhea itself is, is pretty dangerous in that uh, you're losing a lot of electrolytes, you're losing a lot of fluid, and if this person just also either has nausea or vomiting or just doesn't eat as much or doesn't have resources to eat or doesn't right. understand how to eat healthily, like all of a sudden this person has all these uh, electrolyte abnormalities. They have low potassium, low mag, low phos, which is what this patient had. You basically... Um, needed to be fed and needed to get nutrition and she went through you know the whole refeeding right. syndrome which i'm sure we could get into but basically these people that burnt out their pancreas uh they need pancreatic supplements they need enzymes uh to help them digest the food that they do take in and then they need symptomatic control like loperamide or things that kind of slow down their gut and, and make sure that um, they're not having as much diarrhea so that's why i brought pancreatic insufficiency up yeah that's a good one chronic pancreatitis is just unfortunately one of those things that we don't have a lot of really effective treatments for besides i mean enzyme supplementation and symptomatic treatment like you said one of those things that, like, once it gets to that point, there's just not a lot to do, unfortunately. Yep. Um, and would you want to check an amylase or a lipase in that person? Hmm. I mean, in theory, you could, but if your pancreas is burnt out, then in theory, those shouldn't be elevated. Right. So in practice, you are correct. People, uh, so acute pancreatitis, you want to check an amylase and lipase. That can actually be used as one of, like, the diagnostic criteria. But chronic pancreatitis, like you said, they, they've burnt that pancreas out, so there isn't really any association between... Um, symptoms and like their their lab values for amylase and lipase. And now that you mentioned acute pancreatitis, I think the three things that people, I think you need two out of three to diagnose a pancreati acute pancreatitis, but you need yeah. an elevated amylase slash lipase. I think mostly lipase. In my uh, recent experience, no one has checked an amylase. It's just, why not just check a lipase? Because it's going to be elevated if they have pancreatitis. Right. Two, it's um, the classic epigastric abdominal pain. And three, if for, the, for some reason, if those two things just maybe just aren't entirely clear or they're missing one or the other, um, you get some imaging, and that will show, you know, the inflammation of the pancreas. Yeah, exactly. And um, so if you got imaging on somebody with chronic pancreatitis, how what would you see? Chronic pancreatitis on imaging? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I would see probably a shrunken pancreas, maybe even some fibrosis in the pancreas. Yeah, so the, the big thing with... Or, ooh, pancreas. some calcifications. Yeah, there you go. So you get that autodigestion. Your horns. Uh, you get that autodigestion, and then over time it causes, uh, it acts as like a foci for calcification and um, like you said it will be shrunken and just kind of fibrotic looking I have another question now that we're on the pancreas sure and this is actually kind of going back to last week's episode so if you haven't watched last week's episode stop this here go back and listen to that entire 50 minutes and please ignore the background noise I'm gonna come back to this one please sub to the patreon for the version of that with no background noise <laughs> yeah I apologize that was Bobby's fault but we hope that there's no more background noise in uh, future episodes maybe maybe so we have another vignette, 53-year-old female, carcinoid tumor. We talked about this in the last episode, mm -hmm. kind of carcinoid, the flushing, abdominal cramps, wheezing, right-sided lesions on the heart, right, um, high right. levels of serotonin, metabolite 5-H-I-A-A like yeah, yeah. 
a um, so kind of full loop 53 year old female with a carcinoid tumor. This is a tough one. Recently resected. Now she's presenting with some hyperpigmented skin lesions and diarrhea. Husband also knows that she's a little bit more irritable. What's going on? Um, she had her carcinoid tumor resected. If you can't tell, I'm stalling for time. Um, he said she's irritable. What were her other symptoms? Sorry. Don't be sorry. Carcinoid tumor. Mm-hmm. Now she has skin lesions, diarrhea, and is just not mentally herself. She's got a dermatitis. She's got some diarrhea. Oh. And. So she's got a niacin deficiency. That niacin finally caught up to her. Oh. What do you mean? Pellagra. Nice. And why does she have pellagra? Because uh, the carcinoid tumor consumes um, niacin. I mean, that biochem stuff is pretty step one, folks. Look up on your own time. But part of the, <laughs> the tryptophan serotonin pathway, you can shunt niacin into it. Exactly. So this woman has basically had this carcinoid tumor shuttling all this tryptophan into serotonin. And now she has no niacin, and she's basically got pellagra, the dermatitis, diarrhea, and I think the last three is deme- or the last D is dementia. Yeah. Um, so there's actually or, there's four Ds depending yeah. on how morbid you want to be, but yeah, it's diarrhea, dermatitis, dementia, and then if it's untreated, then it leads to death. Hmm. Yeah. So that's all. That's just something that I thought was an interesting uh, flashback to step one, but also kind of a cool little vignette to remind us of carcinoid tumor and really the severe effects it can have. Yeah, that's one of those nice biochem tie-ins where it's like, you don't really have to, like, memorize it, but it, like, makes sense, you know? Right. Cheers. <coughs> an old man with numbness and tingling in his arms and legs comes into you, and he's an old man, and you're going to type and look it up into up-to-date. What do you think he has? Old man. <laughs> By the sea. Um, uh, vitamin... Stocking gloves, yeah, vitamin B12 deficiency, yeah, or no, okay, stop, yeah, you're right, exactly. So, a B12 deficiency, it's actually pretty common um, in our elderly population. Your, your body just gets less efficient at making and absorbing intrinsic factors. So, um, I think a fairly significant proportion of the population um, needs some form of B12 supplementation over the age of 65. My dad actually goes and gets shots pretty regularly of B12. Um, oh, now people will know who you are, <laughs> yeah, right, there's only one old man getting B12 injections. Um, but anyway, so it's, it's actually pretty common in the elderly population and, uh, typically it will present with kind of a, well, there's two, there's two main aspects to it. So one is the the neurological symptoms where you have like a peripheral neuropathy type numbness and tingling, and you'll also get a megaloblastic anemia. And then this is like kind of a classic test association, but they'll want you to be able to differentiate, um, a megaloblastic anemia from a B12 versus a folate deficiency. Mm. Do you happen to remember how you would do that? How would you the arachidonic acid? Arachidonic acid, that Hold is... Hold on. Is that not right? <laughs> no. Hold on. To differentiate a B12 in a folate deficiency requires the analysis of one enzyme that is not linked within the two systems. And I want to say like a methylgluconate or something. What is the answer? Methyl so, me- it's a MMA. Is that the yeah, abbreviation? Yeah, exactly. So methylmalonic acid uh, and uh, homocysteine are the two lab values that are kind of classically associated with this. So the two uh, metabolites that you want to look at is actually uh, homocysteine and methylmalonic acid. You'll have a, um, a buildup of both of them if you have a B12 deficiency, and then if you just have a folate deficiency, then you'll only have a uh, homocysteine excess. Um, right. And the other thing is, is you, so sometimes if you have a B12 deficiency and you treat them with folate alone, it will, it'll fix the anemia standpoint, but they'll still have progression of their neurologic symptoms. 
Right. And if, if you really and leave that B12 deficiency untreated, so it starts out with like peripheral neuropathy, and then you can actually end up with what's called the, I believe, subacute combined degeneration, where you, you lose your like dorsal column, medial, and meniscus pathway in your spinal cords. Right. And where do those uh, crossover? Uh, that is a good question. I think that they cross over um, higher up in the brain. Um, what, what's the term for the. Yeah, what is the term for when the nerves cross over? There's a term for decusation, right? Decusate, yeah. So I think, I think they, those they are in the medulla. Higher up, yeah, because it's like, right, versus the spinal thalamic pathway, which is the lateral pathway that decusates immediately or like right at the level. Um, right, or two like levels up, right? Yeah, and that's why you end up like getting differential symptoms with like Brown's acquired syndrome, where you have like exactly. unilateral paralysis and then contralateral like loss of pain, tension, yada yada. But this is not a neuro Whoa. podcast. Whoa, neurosection. Full mind circle. Up, that's what people love, though. Connection. People love the, uh, people love it. That's the, that's all the feedback I get is when we uh, integrate multiple systems, people are all about it. We're here to break down boundaries. And now for a poem. The forest does not shrink for the wolf. If anything, it goes higher. Thank you. How did that pick up? That was good. My poem for today yeah. is by Edgar Allan Poe. Baby shoes for sale. Ever worn. Really is that really a poem? Yeah, it is. Nice. That's kind of your go-to poem. It's like you're on a date, and they're like, tell me your favorite poem. <laughs> yeah, I just want to depress them and like really make it sad. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one to lead with. Because then it's really only upwards from there, you know? That's a good baseline. No, I'm looking up poems to like... Uh... <laughs> to hate is an easy, lazy thing. But to love takes strength. Everyone has, but not all are willing to practice. Air horns. <laughs> Haikus are easy. But sometimes they don't make sense. Refrigerator. What is stronger than the human heart, which shatters over and over and still loves? All right, a 20 year old female, long history of anxiety, comes in with some bowel habit changes, but unremarkable exam. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about IBS. Classic IBS. So we already talked about kind of the mind gut access today, and I think, in my opinion, this is like the best example of mind gut access, I mean, significant odds ratio of someone with IBS having some other psychiatric diseases is through the roof. I mean, uh, they're very much related. So my next question to you is, what is the treatment? What is the right answer on the step two USMLE CK for someone with IBS? And it's not a medicine. I would say reassurance and close follow-up. Exactly. So if these patients require a strong patient-physician relationship. You should not tell them that it's in their head. You should not tell them they're messed up, that it's made up, that this isn't a real pain because it is real to them, and um, it's something that you need to consistently follow. You might know in the back of your head that this is likely psychiatric in nature. It's likely serotonin imbalance that's causing this, but um, to them, this is a real pain that you need to follow closely and, and legitimize, and um, that is the answer on a step 2 CK prompt about IBS. Yeah, it's one of those things, again, it's hard to treat. I mean, this, this falls under, I believe the term is like a functional um, bowel disorder where you know, maybe there is something underlying going on. Science hasn't reached the point where we can uh, detect some sort of lab abnormality. But um, something that I have been told in the past is, like, a lot of it comes down to framing. So, like, on one hand, you can say, like, our tests haven't found anything wrong with you. Like, we don't know what's going on. And so that might cause them to kind of search for answers more and, like, kind of be distrustful of the medical system and end up going down the pathway of getting more and more invasive um, procedures and, like, doctor shopping and stuff. Um, but the better way to frame it is that like, we can't find anything wrong with you. Like, that's a good thing I'm here to help you. Like, 
not to, like you said, not minimizing their, their symptoms, but cool. How's your beer? Uh, my beer's good. The Gold Cliff IPA. If I had to give it a rating on the grand scale, I would probably give it a 6 out of 10 today, which isn't a bad score. It's just nothing too special. I'm saving those 9, 8, and 9 out of 10s for those really great brews. Yeah. And this is something I would drink again. It's just um, not something maybe that I would seek out. Does that makes sense? Yeah. I got what you. about you? Yeah, I'd say about the same. This uh, Cumulus Nimbus from uh, Seven Sun Brewing Company is uh, probably like a six or six point five. Like it's pretty good. Um, but again, I like you said, I don't, I don't think that I would seek it out. I just if somebody offers me, I'd be like, yeah, sure, sounds good. When I say small bowel obstruction, major cause, you think? I think that there's two major causes, and it depends on if we're talking about somebody who's had previous surgery or not. But in the United States, the most common cause would be adhesions from prior surgery. Perfect. Worldwide, it's a hernia. Very nice. Those are going to be my, my selling points. But basically, uh, adhesions, prior surgeries, are, are the number one cause uh, oftentimes in the question prompt for those with small bowel obstruction. So on physical exam in the question prompt, look for a descended belly, tenderness on palpation, look for any prior surgical scars or in the prompt, any prior surgical history, cholecystectomy, hernia repair, etc. And then like Bobby said, if the patient has hernias at all, you need to start thinking about small bowel obstruction. Yeah, and what would be a... Uh first test that you would do in terms of in somebody that you suspect the small bowel obstruction in hmm. a rectal exam uh yeah that's not a bad start i meant more from like an imaging standpoint <laughs> could you get an obstruction series on uh x-ray or yeah. if it's not that fancy you can maybe get a kb if you thought there was <sighs> i guess the kb could still look at like bowel pattern like gas patterns and potentially preparation free air under the diaphragm but i don't think it's great for like just looking at an obstruction yeah, so I think well, people generally start with the KUB because it can also show you, it'll give you insight into whether or not it's a complete obstruction. So if you see bowel gas distal to the suspected site of the obstruction, then you know that it's a partial because it means at least some air is moving. Right. Uh, versus a complete, there'll be, there'll be no distal air. Yeah, that makes sense. And I remember reading something about like a stepwise like dilation pattern. So like you have the obstruction and then uh, you'll notice that like it starts backing up and you'll see that in the x-ray. The, the bowel just proximal or to the obstruction will start kind of getting more and more dilated. Yeah, yeah, it works its way back. Do you happen to know the uh, most common site of a perforation, which some people might say is a bad outcome or like a serious complication? Uh, Who says SDO that? Would be? I think it's just an opinion some people have. Yeah, an opinion piece. Right. The most common site of small bowel obstruction is the ileocecal junction. Yeah, so I, I think that is correct. Um, I was getting more at the most common site of perforation. Uh, is actually this. I already forgot your question. <laughs> that's great. That's my fault. I was making fun of you during it. You were probably just trying to tone me off. I was uh, on the defense. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the cecum is kind of thin walled compared to the rest of the small bowel, and so it tends to, to dilate more quickly and is also more susceptible to, to rupture. And hmm. the, uh, the cutoff point that they want you to know for whatever reason is actually 10 centimeters. So if you have a. Uh, obstruction then the cecum is dilating like once they get to 10 centimeters that person's going to surgery interesting okay so along the same lines if i say the word ileus to you do any etiologies come to mind well i mean ileus is typically like post-op ileus can be from a number of reasons so like bowel stunning from just having instrumentation but then also like morphine um acts as a it works on those new opioid receptors so that can actually cause ileus and then um i believe hypokalemia is another big one Yep. Um, what about like uh, endocrine abnormalities? 
it's I much know. it's much simpler than uh I think I'm over than your it. yeah so like hypothyroid for example and uh, diabetes were my two that I had oh right just that makes sense does does uh diabetes I guess it's it's just kind of GI stunning in general I I more associate like diabetes with gastroparesis but like I said we probably extend the majority of the small bowel yeah just like that's exactly right like diabetes is the same thing to the nerves in your GI as they do it to your feet um, and to your eyes and all that good stuff so um, just really slows down slows down the bowels the nerve fibers don't work as well and uh, you get that hypothyroid similar kind of thing electrolyte imbalances you spoke about post-op uh, medications even such as opiates and then even anticholinergics um, I had a patient recently and they had a suspected ileus and so our attending said, stop giving them the duoneb, stop giving them the anticholinergic, right. uh, basically, inhaler, because they thought that could be reabsorbed and be causing um, the ileus. So yeah. something interesting little jewel there. Alrighty. Well, to put you back on the defensive, I guess, uh, what about if you're suspecting ileus in, like, a, an old man, and you get an x-ray, and it's just his large bowels that are dilated? What are you suspecting? I'm going to say it wrong. But... Okay. Ogilvy's, Ogilvy's, Ogilvy's. Yeah, worse than I expected. Uh, yeah, it's Ogilvy. <laughs> That's pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> you do. I gotta be more confident. I say it the exact same way. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Ogilvy syndrome is just a isolated dilation of the large bowels. If you get a, a, a KUB on them, you'll actually see loss of the uh, hostra of the large bowels, like a classic radiologic sign. Uh, and do you know what the treatment for that is? No, I don't. So it's the... Well, usually it's due to medication, so you stop the offending medication, like you said, um, like anticholinergics. And this is the one instance where you can actually give something that will kind of help get the bowels moving again, as compared to other forms of ileus where you tend to not want to give any medications. But you can give them uh, neostigmine, actually. Hmm. Neostigmine. Mm-hmm. Anti... Or no, antibiotic? So it's, a, it's a cholinergic. Anticholinergic. Oh, no, it's not an antic. It's a cholinergic. So it's kind of like the opposite of you know, what you were saying. Hmm. Interesting. That's just for Ogilvy's? Mm-hmm. That's the only time that you would use neostigmine to... Ogilvy. <laughs> I said it right. Thanks for watching. Please subscribe to our videos on YouTube. There you go. Now you know. There you go. All right, guys, that is it for today's episode. As always, if you have any insights, recommendations, just want to talk, email us at iatrogenicproductions at gmail.com. That is a real email. It does exist, and we will get your message. So please without further ado, up. I'm begging you, please, please. talk to us. <laughs> you want to send this out, Bobby? I implore you. Anyway, take care. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. <coughs> I'm good. Oh, Oh, good to be. Yay!